Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, the founder of Alzheimer Speaks. And my mom had dementia for 30 years, and that drove me to change careers and help raise everyone's voice. So those living with dementia, uh, those uh, families who are dealing with it, researchers, um, business professionals, authors, musicians, uh, movie directors, advocates, you name it, everyone's voice is welcome here. And I would welcome you to uh, suggest to be a guest on the show as well. Just reach out to me if you have an interest in doing so. We've been doing this, gosh, almost 10 years now. It's kind of hard to believe. And we interview people all around the world. But again, it's about raising everyone's voice and just making it a little bit easier to connect to services, products, and tools, and to be able to understand that you're not alone, that this is a story that many people are walking with, and we need to talk about it more. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I have to share with you some exciting news. I'm working with a group in Minnesota, and we just launched a survey on uh, traveling with dementia, and it's all about gathering airport stories, and mm -hmm. the survey will be open until September 15th, and you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com, and it's right on top there, so you can't miss it, but we we're really encouraging people to, to fill this information out because there's very, very little data out there. And as we know, all businesses can improve their services uh, to, uh, to people living with dementia and people caring for them. I also want to give a shout out to uh, the Memory Cafe directory. They just do such a marvelous job in connecting people with support for people with dementia and their care partners as well as Us Against Alzheimer's. They just do an absolutely fabulous job. If you don't get their newsletter, you should. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point you can dive in or, or pass. But I love it because they're just always keeping you on top of things from what's going on politically to science to real stories that families are dealing with. So um, with no further ado, I want to introduce our guest today. We're going to have a fascinating conversation about Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia, the science behind it, and, you know, could, could we get it next? And what is it like to, to be in that position about thinking about that? Jamie Tyrone is a, a retired registered nurse and the president and CEO of BABES, which is beating Alzheimer's by embracing science. She's a founding member of Women Against Alzheimer's, known as WA2, and she was honored with a place on Maria Shriver's Big Wall of Empowerment. Jamie herself has a 91% chance of developing Alzheimer's disease, which she's going to explain to us. And so needless to say, she's pretty dang vigilant about being an advocate about prevention and finding a cure for Alzheimer's. And she herself participates in trials, and she urges you to do the same. So this is a woman who walks her talk. 
And so thank you, Jamie. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. I can't wait for people to learn a little bit more about your book here, Fighting for My Life. I think it's a, it's a powerful book that gives people some really great insights and, and things to think about in, in their own life in terms of choices they make. Now, next, I want to introduce your co-author, Dr. Marwan Sabah, and he's a leading expert in Alzheimer's diagnosis, treatment, and researcher, and he's also the director of the Cleveland Clinic for Brain Health in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Dr. Sabah is the author also of The Alzheimer's Answer and The Alzheimer's Prevention Cookbook, which both sound really fascinating to me, too. So welcome, Dr. Sabat. I'm going to start out um, because I always ask everybody this question who is on our show. And that question is this. Have you been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends? And I'm going to start with Dr. Sabat, if you don't mind. Uh, me and my biological family, there's no, my mother and before she passed had water on the brain or normal pressure hydrocephalus uh, in the last couple of months of her life. But uh, I have to tell you, I've been less of a caregiver uh, as a person and more as a care provider as a professional for 25 years of taking care of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. Great. Thank you. Jamie, how about you? Um, we'll get into your your situation with your own family. I think this will be fascinating for people to hear. So my great-grandmother, grandmother, two great-uncles, um, all passed with Alzheimer's disease. My mother had vascular dementia, and then my father also passed with Alzheimer's disease. So I have it on both sides of my family. So I've seen it passed down through generations. Okay, that's a, that's a lot of people. Um, I know that many people that I, I talk with um, in support groups and just around the world through conversations like these, you know, when I ask them, do they think it's hereditary? And they're like, you know, they say it's not, but I think it is. And they rattle off just a, a wide variety of people within their families. And, you know, one of my beliefs is, is that we just don't have enough data to even track that thing because the name of even what we call dementia over the years has changed. And it wasn't always on, on the death certificate. Um, with that. Um, Dr. Sabat, any comment on, on my comment regarding that? It's true. Uh, death certificates often do not reflect uh, the fact that uh, people die from their Alzheimer's. I think people perceive that you don't actually die from Alzheimer's, and that's a, that comes from the death certificate comment. The fact is that people do die from Alzheimer's. It's somewhere between the fourth and sixth leading cause of death, depending on what uh, statistic or what year you're quoting. Uh, but, you know, people say, well, you don't really die. You die from infection or bed sores or heart, your heart or lungs stop breathing. You know, you stop breathing. But the fact is you're in the bed to begin with because of Alzheimer's. So um, the reflection on the death certificate is, reflects the fact that people don't feel like they understand the disease process, despite the huge advances that we've made. Well, I remember when my mom passed away and I saw the death certificate. The doctor had said that they were going to put pneumonia down. And I'm like, no, I want Alzheimer's down. I said, yeah. I said, How, why can't you put both down? And they're like, well, there's only one space. And I'm like, that has got to change. And I don't know if it has since she passed, but 
It was, no. it's an asinine thing that has not changed because people have multiple, you know, situations in their life and we would be able to have so much better data and all that was, that's probably a 15 to 30 minute thing for any programmer to do. So I personally think, you know, I would like to almost see legislation mandate that to get that change so that we can have better results for you guys to, to work with. But I'll get off my, my little high horse on that one. But that just irritated me so much. You know, it was like, you've got to be kidding me. No wonder we're behind in research and we don't have as much data as we should. Jamie, any comment that, that you wanted to add regarding that? Well, that happened the same thing with my father. His, uh, his death certificate said that he died of osteoporosis and his vertebrae were collapsing. Well, it was happening because he was falling from Alzheimer's disease. And so um, I actually specifically asked if they were to change it. Um, and they said they would. Have they? You know, we spoke with the physician and he said he would, but who knows whether or not that happened, but absolutely, definitely underreported. Small thing to change, but big impact, I think, that it that it would have. Um, Jamie, now, did you choose, because a lot of people, um, you know, we, we've got this ability to go and choose and take a test and see, do we have the gene? Have you, have you done that? Well, actually, um, I participated in a study 10 years ago that um, was trying to see whether or not people would change their lifestyle if they knew that they were genetic risk for certain diseases. And one of the diseases was multiple sclerosis, in which I was having neurological issues. And so there were some question marks as to whether or not um, I thought this would be a piece to the puzzle. Um, Alzheimer's wasn't even on my radar screen, even though I had it on both sides of the family. And... I was what I call healthy denial. I was 49 at the time. And I thought, ah, it's not going to happen to me. I have a fun life. It's just, it was, like I said, it wasn't even in the back of my mind, which is now I think about it. And I think I should have known. Um, so I participated in the study and my risk for MS actually came out lower than the um, general population. But as I'm sitting there at eight o'clock one night at my computer, it's, it was basically the direct to consumer marketing experience where there wasn't any counseling during the informed consent process, um, which they, a genetic counselor would have seen my history and also evaluated my motivation for wanting to go through the study. So one night at eight o'clock, I pull up my results. I was so excited. I couldn't wait. And there, lo and behold, it said that uh, I came back with two copies of the APOE4 uh, allele gene. Marin, Dr. Sabah can probably explain that a little bit better. Um, and so there I was left with this information totally unprepared for it, as my father was, was passing with Alzheimer's disease. And I, um, my, his, his wife and myself and his stepdaughter were his caregivers. Wow. Talk about, you know, where's my bulletproof vest when you're reading that one? That had to just be a shocker. Total shock. Total shock. And um, my reaction was uh, I was very stunned. Um, I was worried about not my future, but really my family's future. And if I got Alzheimer's disease, what would it look like for them? So I was definitely anxiety provoked for quite a bit of time, I was told that I probably not should disclose this information for possible discrimination. So I literally was in a cold, deep, dark place for about three years before I, I entered into therapy. Wow. I just, um, yeah, <laughs> I haven't been brave enough to take it, 
part of it part of it for me has been would it really make a difference and would it would it do more harm than good you know with that knowledge just from that whole psychological standpoint of you know now what and and could i could i compartmentalize that to work functionally with it or would i just be like ah you know <laughs> that was me <laughs> yeah so I, I can I can totally appreciate appreciate that, um, Doctor Sabat. Do you mind explaining a little bit more about uh, about the the gene itself? So APOE is actually a cholesterol transporting gene, and as we uh, uh, there are multiple apolipoproteins. So we take cholesterol, we eat it, we digest it, and then we use proteins to carry it from our digestive tract to our liver and through our body. Uh, so there are genes associated with the expression of those proteins. And those genes uh, found out that the APOE gene subtypes are associated not only with increased risk for heart disease, but increased risk for Alzheimer's as well. That association uh, observation was made somewhere around 1993 by the group at Duca, Dr. Corder, uh, 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 Saunders, and Roses made that observation and has been after 25 plus years, the most consistent genetic association marker uh, found in science uh, for Alzheimer's, with the exception of the rare, rare autosomal mutations. Thank you for that. That that is really helpful to just have a little bit more background regarding the gene and and the effects. Um, I I personally didn't know the connection also with heart disease as well. So I've learned something something new here today as well. Um, Jamie, what did you learn going through this process in terms of, you know, taking this test, not necessarily having any counseling with it? Um, what would you tell others if they're thinking about doing this? So what I learned through this whole process was um, things that probably most people don't know. Um, for instance, basically the high risk. I mean, people, um, before they take these tests, I don't think they really understand what it is that they're testing. And as Dr. Sabah says regarding cholesterol transportation and exactly how these genes are, um, you, you inherit. So the allele comes in a two, three, and four form. So you inherit one form from each parent. So I inherited a four from my mom and a four from my father, which puts me at this greatest risk. I didn't know any of that. Um, number two, I learned that if I had more education and had the ability to speak with a genetic counselor beforehand during the whole genetic, during the whole uh, consent process, I truly believe I wouldn't want it to have known. And I would have had a more education, educated decision, uh, again, based on family history. Um, I also learned that there are ways you can decrease risk uh, for Alzheimer's disease through lifestyle and, um, you know, intervention. Um, and I also learned that during a consent process, you know how you want an app so bad and you go to download it and you, it comes to terms and conditions and you go, I want that. And you scroll through it and you hit send. Um, I learned that that's what I did. And that's what a lot of people are doing. And by the time they get this information, the cat's already out of the bag. You cannot turn around. Um, and I really miss the healthy denial. I miss the fact that I had 10 years where I had all this anxiety around uh, my risk for Alzheimer's disease, which by the way, I may not get. 
Um, but there's that uncertainty. And when I um, misplace keys or um, I look for a word, I automatically go to I'm getting Alzheimer's disease. So I learned that the anxiety piece of it for me personally was not worth knowing. I can totally understand and respect that because I, I would be doing the same thing because I think when you have, you know, dementia in your family to begin with, you know, when you miss a word and, and all that, you, that starts to, to enter. I just turned 60 and, you know, it didn't used to bother me as much, but as I'm getting older, it's, I, you're just more conscious of it. And if I would have that, uh, that scientific information on top of that, I can see where the anxiety would just totally raise, raise up. And that would be something uh, difficult uh, to control. And, and not only for myself, but you know, then if I let my family members know too, I'd be wondering, are they looking at me like, oh, here she goes. Is this the beginning? You know, <laughs> I see me maybe a little bit more too. Out of all fairness, there are people out there who go gung-ho, they change their lifestyle, they're very diligent about it, um, but there was a study, um, it was a retrospective study that even though they did make those lifestyle changes, that there was some anxiety involved in the beginning. Um, so whereas this is my personal experience um, and the anxiety, there are people out there that may be okay with it, but get the information and make an educated decision. Very good comment. Cause all of us are different, but and we have the right to choose. Absolutely. I Absolutely. Believe, I believe we have the right to choose. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Sabat, what are your thoughts on this process? I think uh, Jamie is of course uh, very brave. I think that what she did and writing this book and telling her story and telling people about this um, is an important story. And the reason I say this to you is that, you know, we agree, the three of us, that people have the right to know their genetic information. That's not been the standard approach in Alzheimer's research. People are taboo about whether you should know or not. I think, uh, I think there's a push across all fields to learn more about genetic disclosure. And the tragedy here, Lori, is that people are finding out by accident their genetics uh, through their 23andMe commercial experience, not understanding that they're being tested for Alzheimer's, not understanding the possibility and the consequences of those decisions. And so an informed uh, uh, audience and an informed readership uh, is a group of people that really need to think about these things before they think, oh, well, this is fun, I'm going to spit in a tube and send it to Boston and see, haha, what's going to happen? Because uh, there are consequences of having these kinds of pieces of information. And so I think, you know, Jamie's story is going to be repeated hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times over the next weeks and months when people start to realize, oh my gosh, what does this mean? What are the consequences of knowing this information? So that's why this, uh, this topic is so timely. Uh, I totally agree. Well, and the other thing is, that, you know, the privacy of these tests too in terms of, I mean, and I don't know if these stories are true or not, but I've heard stories of, well, you know, police are now finding serial killers through this data, and who the heck has this data? <laughs> well, the, you know, that uh, you don't, when you spit in the tube and send it to Boston for 99 bucks, uh, you're thinking that's a great deal. But in fact, uh, you know, we don't know what happens to that information. They could sell it. They could share it. 
they could disclose it to other people because I don't think there's anything about the, the providing the genetic material that uh, that prevents us from controlling how it's used after it's done. Jamie, I could be wrong on that. Is that correct? No, you're very correct. And so when people are signing these consents and I've spoken with numerous people who have said, gosh, I signed a consent. I didn't really realize that uh, this data can actually be monetized. So when you start looking at the sharing of the data, it is de-identified, but there are instances you wonder, I mean, we go through major uh, data breaches all the time. So the question is, is number one, you don't know who's getting the data. Number two, is it being shared or sold? And number three, I now could possibly be at risk. Once that data is out, you can't take that back. You are now open to the same discrimination with long-term care insurance, life insurance, and disability insurance. So the question is, is is it worth knowing, knowing that there is a possibility that your DNA could be out there without your control? Great point. One of the things that I've been hearing from some people is that they go outside their insurance and even outside the country to to get these tests so it's just supposed to be private and no one else has access to it now i don't know if that is accurate dr sabat might know more on that the fact is is that uh getting a commercial genetic information like 23andme and ancestry does not show up in your medical record unless you physically take the report to your doctor and they add it to the medical record so the good news is, is that you can actually get that genetic information, learn about it yourself, and not have it part of your medical record. The reason this is a very important thing, Lori, is that the Congress passed a law in 2008 called the GINA Act, which is the Genetic Information Non-Discriminability Act, which says you cannot lose your ability to get health care insurance on the basis of your genetics, but you can lose your ability to get long-term care insurance because Congress specifically exempted long-term care insurance. So we subsequently in the field say we would not routinely test people genetically for this information. And I will say this to you, Lori, in my medical practice as a neurologist, I only test people who are having symptoms for the APOE gene. I would never test people who are not having symptoms, but yet that's what's being done every day when people spit in a tube and send it to Boston. Wow. What about, uh, you know, for people who are, are getting medical um, tests out of the country? Is that still a private? Yes, that's still a private. It only shows up unless you're an ordering physician who's your practicing physician puts it in the record and orders it. Well, and I can see too, like, uh, you know, if I got that, I would be going to my doctor going, what's up? You know, so Jamie, why don't you speak to that? That's exactly what I did. So again, not knowing that it's in my medical record. And we are protected from the HIPAA Act, which um, protects the information. But again, if there are insurance companies that request it, it will be disclosed. Um, But that's the first thing I did. I went to my primary care physician and I gave him this information. And the first thing he said is, why did you do this? Um, And the second thing he said was, okay, now that you know this, here's what you know, you're at increased risk for cardiac disease. And so uh, we did do a cardiac workup. And at that point in time, it was just clean and freer. And I was young. So, um, but again, it's in my medical record. So, you know, there really isn't anything that I can do about it. So I, what I advocate for is if somebody really goes through and gets all this information and they decide that they still want to know, then what I would suggest is that 
unless it's something really, really um, critical, that they ask not to have it put in their medical record and to kind of get your financial house in order um, and then go through the testing if you so desire. So question, Dr. Spot, if somebody asks you, brings this paperwork in and says, but I don't want this in my medical record, is that something you can even do? So if they got it done through 23andMe, they don't, I can, uh, uh, I don't have to add it. It came up as recently as yesterday, actually. I saw a patient with mild cognitive impairment, and it turned out that he uh, had already had the 23andMe, and he showed me the report, and I said, because it was part of our conversation, I asked him, do you want me to add what you just showed me to the medical record or not? And we decided that the answer was yes. In his case, he wanted me to add it. Uh, so um, it would not happen routinely. It just is on a case-by-case -case basis. Okay, good, good to know because it, you know that's one of those things. Again, you don't know until you don't, it, until you know. Sometimes, and you would expect it to be honored, but you know maybe there's an ethical barrier where you know once once a doctor knows, then it has to has to go in there. And I know, like when I go to the doctor somebody else is typing up the notes while he's talking you know? and so I don't you don't really know what's going in there all the time um Jamie why why did you feel that it was important to to write your book so um I had been when I decided to go into therapy my therapist after being diagnosed with PTSD um she recommended that I do some journaling and that maybe at some point in time that I would want to write a book and about the experience. So one day, in fact, Dr. Sabah was doing a, um, an event around his cookbook um, in San Diego, and I just kind of happenstancely asked him what he wanted to do when he retired, him and his wife, and he says, I would love to write more books. And I said, oh. I said, you know, I've been told I should write a book. And he said, I want to write that book with you. And I was shocked, and I'm like, well, why? And he's you have an important story to tell. It's very important that people get this information. And so that was kind of the birth of the book. And um, I, this book would not be here today if it weren't for Dr. Sabah. Now, I have to ask you, was your post-traumatic stress from finding out that you had this gene? Yes, it was. And if you look at post-traumatic stress, it's not only those who actually have been physically maimed, but also when there's a threat to health. So that was definitely a huge part of it. The other part of it was the isolation and felt like nobody understood. Um, I, I called the Alzheimer's Association and bless them. This was not their fault. This was 10 years ago. And there weren't any support groups for this. Um, and again, I was told not to talk about it. So that point when I ended up in therapy, I was actually at the point where I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to be here or not. Um, and, and that's in the, it's in the book. Um, and so I was at the point where I had to decide whether or not to take the dark road or take the bright road. And the dark road didn't seem any different than the road I was already living other than not being here. And then I started looking about what does that bright road mean? And I started saying, instead of saying, God, why me? All of a sudden I said, why not me? I mean, I, my whole life had been spent you know, in the medical field and business development and marketing. And I thought, okay, this was the meaning that was made of it. I was given this information for a reason. And once I was able to make sense of it, that's when things just flourished. 
So I wake up every morning, which is very brain healthy, knowing or feeling like I have a purpose, that I can use this experience to help others. I, I love that. Um, for me, um, well, with the journey with my mom, one of the gifts I say that was wrapped in caring for her was she taught me to ask, what's the lesson? When I got pushed against the wall and I wanted to scream and holler, go, I can't do this anymore, <laughs> you know? And I, would, I, and I found when I asked that question, I looked for different things. So I saw different things. I wasn't looking, I was, I was like just getting stuck in the mud and getting sucked in the, into the quicksand. And then I really started looking at, you know, why did this happen to me? You know, why, how can this help others? And it just, and then everything changed. Well, and look at where you are today and how many people that you've affected and, and helped along our, our journeys through your journey. So, um, you know, there's a point, there's a part of me that says, you know, God gives us gifts and we don't know what they are until we choose to unwrap them. And um, we all have a choice to unwrap that and figure out what is the meaning behind this. And I will have to tell you that I learned to love my father again through this experience. I looked at him, I saw this weak man, and that's not how I grew up. He was very powerful. And I saw this weak man who was human, and I was able to wrap my hands and heart around him. And, um, and that was very healing for me. So that in itself is a gift. And like you said, the gifts from God, they come in really strange packages. You know, who, who would have thought that there was exactly. there? But yeah, the, the beauty and the lessons of of compassion and humanity and um, being more present, simplifying life, being more flexible. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, I found dementia, as much as people would go, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. I, I found myself saying, and I still say that to this day, is my mom's disease is the biggest gift I'll ever receive because she taught me to be a better person. You know, and I'm, you know, I thought I was pretty good before, but I think I'm much better and I think I got a long ways to go. But it, but it really taught me that every person at any stage has gifts to give and that can never be taken away. The only one that can take that away is us thinking that of another. And so I, I truly believe dementia is here to really change the world in terms of how we interact and what we expect out of it and what we give because I, I, I think we've we're used to getting so much all the time and we've forgotten what a gift being able to give to another is and and so um, yeah it comes in strange strange packages but very sound and profound ways. Dr. Sabat for you, what, what drew you to writing this, this book with Jamie? Uh, Jamie said it very well. I was drawn to her story. We were actually sitting on a panel at a luncheon uh, back many years ago, and she was telling this story, and I, I just was moved by the story, and I said, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. I leaned over and said this to her, and uh, I feel like Jamie's story will become the story of many, many people. And I knew at that moment in time that uh, this is a story that needs to be heard. We, it took a long time to get the book going uh, because we had duality of voice. If you ultimately see the book, it is the uh, half, her half is an autobiography and my half is kind of, what are the consequences of having this? What are the, what do you need to know before you do this? Uh, 
what should you have do with this information? So the duality of the book, which as you read it, it's two separate voices, two separate thought processes. Um, it took a long time to get peak publishers convinced that this was a good idea, but once they saw it, they're like, oh yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing that they want to go with. Um, and we've, I have to tell you, gee whiz, Jamie, about four years, five years we worked on this. I'm just happy to see it get to over the finish line. It was, it, was, uh, it was a labor, but it was a worthwhile labor at the end of the day. Part of what I'm thinking is you're telling the story of the length of time. If it would have been published four or five years earlier, it wouldn't be as powerful because so many people are doing this now. And, you know, I just, for me, I've always been told you're, you're 10 years ahead of the curve, Lori, <laughs> you know, and I think you were too. You know, you were 10 years ahead of the curve when, when it was common. And now, now there's these repercussions and how do you, how do you deal with them? Um, Dr. Spot, I want to talk about, can you actually decrease your risk? So the answer is, uh, we, we hope so. Um, I'm going to break this, uh, Lori, your, com your question into two parts. One part is, can we decrease the risk of developing dementia if you actually follow all the latest uh, uh, literature about lifestyle interventions and aggressive therapy, including exercise, dietary change, optimization of healthcare, we know that the answer is that you do risk, reduce the risk the, the, of uh, developing Alzheimer's and slow the rate of decline. The data is so good on those that now the National Academy of Sciences and the World Health Organization has both recommended that cognitive stimulation, physical exercise, and blood pressure management has sufficient evidence to recommend them to, produce, to delay, prevent, or reduce the risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. But the second question that's Im implied in your, in your question is, can you offset genetic risk? I mean, Jamie has risk because of her genes. Can we take our lifestyle and our health conditions and our health habits and maximize them and do everything we can and reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease? That's, a, that's still a large unknown. We hope so. We think so. But we still don't know for sure. Jamie, anything you want to add to that? You know, this is what I really respect and about Dr. Sabah is because he's very realistic in his approach. He's not giving false hope, but he's being realistic in the possibility that there is. And so from somebody who has this high risk of 91%, I'm kind of an evidence-based type of girl. I want to know if I give up that second glass of wine, if I decide to have prime rib, that how much is that going to de decrease my risk? Is it worth not enjoying a meal um, because I'm not going to help myself. So I think in, in this is kind of interesting about this, the title of Fighting for My Life. I think what I fight for is balance, that I take this information, I do the best I can, but I'm not going to obsess over it. Um, so that's kind of where I am with all of it. And I look forward to the studies that will come out one day that will actually specifically look at it and measure risk. I don't know, you know, if, how soon that will be, but I still, I still welcome the fact that there is a way to decrease risk. How much? We don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting when I, I've talked with people many times on this topic and, you know, some are like, I'm going to do everything I can. And others are like, 
I want my pizza. I love pizza. <laughs> pizza is a quality of life for me. You know, balance. <laughs> I, I, I do believe everybody has the right to make that choice for themselves. Um, but I do see over the you know 10 years I've been involved with this, more information coming out that that is showing, you know, like with the finger study and things that lifestyle can have a big impact. And, and I, I personally think one of the biggest flowing concepts, and I have nothing to back this up with other than just what I've seen, and I know there's studies going on, but it's just that social connectedness, that purposefulness. People with dementia that I work with all the time say, I've never felt this before. I really do feel this has slowed things down for me compared to my friends, you know, dealing with this. And and I don't know if that's true or not, but again, it ties into that whole quality of life and what do you, what do you want? And granted, there are some people that, you know, like to be isolated and alone and they're not a people person and they don't want to interact and you know, you don't want to disrupt that boat either and add stress on because stress seems to be such a huge trigger point for people as well. Dr. Sabat, what are your thoughts regarding lifestyle change? I think that uh, these are things that people can do and should do starting today. By the time you walk in the clinic to see me for a memory issue, the changes in the brain have started 20 years before the first day of forgetfulness. In essence, the dementia is the end of the disease, not the beginning of it. And I say this because, you know, people are like, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm like, no, there is a lot you can do about it, and you can start today. And so diet and exercise and, and you know, all the things that we can do, we should do starting right away. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that you can't just live a lousy life and eat a lousy diet and then take a handful of supplements and think that's going to work. It's an engagement day in and day out on a commitment to health and wellness and well-being that happens uh, because it's in your interest to do so. So, you know, the pizza comment is an interesting comment that you made. Uh, you can, uh, I've tried cauliflower crust early. It's really good. So I'm saying you can make changes that still allow you to keep your quality of life and commit yourself to health. Okay, good, good comments. I, I like that. And I, I, you know, I also like uh, in this conversation, you know, that we're having that, you know, people do have a choice, but they can't have a choice if they don't have the knowledge first. That is correct. And so again, we've got to get more information out to people so that they can that they can make make these decisions. We've now we talked with Jamie kind of about the the effects of of this genetic test and you know what she went through with that. Dr. Spot, what do you see? Because I'm sure you see a lot of people who you know, are, are thinking about this process and, you know, what is the, is there a norm in terms of reaction? I, I'm sure it's like, ah, you know, like, like Jamie and I had said. Um, and, and, and also when you would do um, a test, is there a genetic counselor attached to that if that's the choice? So typically, people who are ordering these things online are not getting any kind of genetic counseling or us, uh, whatsoever. Uh, and I am one of the few physicians that orders it as part of my select, uh, as part of my medical practice in selected cases. And I just tell them up front, this is what I'm ordering and why, and what we're going to do about it. I would only order in people who have symptoms and not in people who are not having symptoms. So I'm very careful, and I tell them up front, this is what I'm ordering. And I asked them if they want to know. And so if they don't want to know, I don't order it. 
Uh, so, um, uh, uh, and I offer the option of genetic counseling, but most of the time they just, we just go ahead and talk it through in the follow-up visit. Now, I will say to you that I don't order in everybody, and I only order it in a patient who I think it would answer the why. It helps answer the why, not the what, but the why. Why did this happen? And it's very informative in that regard. And it helps me to inform them on the probability of progression and probability of, of the Alzheimer's pathology and a lot of other things. So I go to my great lengths to ensure that uh, people are well informed. Thank you. Jamie, was there anything that you wanted to add to, you know, kind of that, that post-life of, of knowing this? So regards to healthy lifestyle living, um, I think, number one, I have to agree with Dr. Sabah, California Pizza Kitchen has a wonderful calvary crust for their pizza. Um, the question I would pose is knowing this information going to motivate you to change. My personal opinion is that you can make these changes. Everybody should be living this lifestyle. So is it going to motivate you or is it going to give you more anxiety after the fact? So that's kind of my thought on that and that we should all be doing this for general health, cardiac health, um, you know, prevention of diabetes type two. This is all wonderful stuff and the studies are showing it. And so I think everybody should be doing it, in my humble opinion. Okay, great. Um, Dr. Sabat, what are, what are your thoughts on, on clinical trials as a whole in, in research studies? Should people participate, or is there a downside to that? Um, I think that uh, people should participate in clinical trials, uh, both for uh, prevention trials and therapeutic trials. The only way we're going to get treatments, everybody says there is no point in diagnosing because there's nothing you can do about it. I hear that time and again, and yet the only way we're going to get to treat these diseases is to get people into trials so we can see if the drugs and the treatments and interventions work. So I am very committed to the idea of promoting research at every level uh, and to everybody as much as possible. Uh, there are risks. Uh, I tell people, you know, uh, there's a chance of a placebo. And everybody says, well, I don't want to be in the study because I'll get the placebo. I say, well, if you're not in the study, you are getting the placebo. So uh, um, it takes a while for people to get their heads around that. Um, but we, you know, we talk about ways to mitigate risk and ensure that their outcome and experience is positive. And I can say to you, there's been many studies suggesting that people who engage in clinical trials get more care, better care, more follow-up. Uh, they feel more engaged and pe they feel like they're more commitment to their health care and well-being. So there is a, nut, a net benefit to being in clinical trials. Wonderful. Jamie, anything you'd like to add? Absolutely. So one of the reasons that motivated um, me to write, to be an author of the book, is that um, to demystify research. I think people think that, oh my goodness, you're in this cold, sterile environment and you're going to get poked and prodded and, and whatever. And it, it, it's doesn't have to be that way. When I, I am a research participant, I'm in a longitudinal biomarker study. Um, I go in twice uh, every two years um, for scans and cognitive testing. And all along the way, I'm being educated. I have a chance to opt out. 
Um, but I look at it at a strategic plan, and Dr. Sabah talks about this. I'm being educated all along the way. I've been giving information. Um, I am treated beautifully, and my, my finger's on the pulse of what's happening in research. So I'm kind of the first to know what's out there. And lastly is that the first person cured of Alzheimer's disease is going to be a research participant. Well, isn't that exciting? You know, and, and I agree with you. I, I think it is very important in terms of um, we're, we're not going to get cures if we don't, if we don't have the studies. We're learning all along the way. So even though a study is deemed a failure, that's not necessarily so because information is learned all along the way. And now we're looking at not necessarily beta amyloid or tau, but now we're really looking at, you know, anti-inflammatory approach. And Dr. Sabah could probably answer this better than I can, but I don't see any, anything as a failure. I just see it as, as progress. I agree. I want to, to follow up uh, last with advances in research for Alzheimer's disease and wondering, Dr. Sabat, if you can uh, talk to that. Yeah, so I, it's a good question, Lori, and a lot of people are asking, you know, all they hear about is the high-profile failures of drugs that have uh, not made it. Uh, and I take Jamie's approach that uh, I take these as progress, not failures. And I say this to you because uh, there are still dozens and dozens of drugs being followed and developed. There are new ideas coming forth every day. I think what we're going to see now is a new trend called segmentation. We're trying to, instead of trying to swing for the fences and cure everything, we're going to start to see little wins, you know, maybe treat the sleep, maybe treat the behavior, maybe treat little things along the way to improve the net quality of life. So I think that's the next big trend in Alzheimer's. Uh, we see a lot of drugs that are uh, making progress. Uh, and, you know, we now kind of think that uh, we're not sure if removing amyloid is the best idea after all, but there are other ideas and drugs that are being tested. I think it's nice to kind of see the, the window broaden a little bit on what this is, because it seems like there's so many different types of dementias popping up. Um, that are that are being found, and I would imagine that probably happens with with any disease such as cancer, where all of a sudden you 've got all these little subgroups of different types that that pop up. Have you found because I, right now it seems like there's a there 's a movement going on where people are and again not everybody, but I think a lot of people are pulling back from pharma insane social engagement and doing some things there. Are you seeing that affect your, um, uh, your studies at all or numbers? I know, I know trials from my knowledge anyways, have always um, struggled getting people into them, but is, is that an aspect that you're seeing pop up with people at all? Uh, actually from our, of course, I run a, one of the largest centers in the country when it comes to clinical trials, so I have a very skewed worldview. Uh, major pharma has pulled back, but there are still major companies still invested and committed and engaged. Uh, we have found that people are still very, very serious and very much wanting to be part of research. They see that what Jamie sees is that they, they know that there are limitations on what they can do in terms of their medications that are approved, and they want something more. And so we're having no difficulty enrolling participants in the trials because they want the future. 
And I think that that's great to hear. I, I think part of the problem too has been how do people find the trials and getting getting the word out. And Jamie, you look like you want to make a comment there. No, no, no. I I was just in the back of in the back of our book. Um, we have a resource guide and it lists all the Alzheimer's disease research centers. There's more than uh, what's listed. And I think we're looking at ways, or and I think Dr. Sabah can probably answer this better. I know there's different registries out there, um, but I think we could do more. But I would like to punt to Dr. Sabah on that one. It's a good starting point. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, there's also the Alzheimer's Association has a trial match registry. Uh, we at the Clinic Clinic, of course, have a lot of trials and other centers as well. So. Uh, there are opportunities, and if you actually look up, if you just Google search Alzheimer's clinical trials, a lot of things pop up rather quickly. There's a big website that everybody needs to know about called clinicaltrials.gov, uh, and it is actually the best place to get information about every trial going on everywhere. Yeah, I, I think what I've heard from people is that they're not always the easiest to maneuver. To well, it's be a very difficult website to maneuver, it's true. And so it would it would be nice if there was almost funding for for like I don't know mentors or someone who could help somebody maneuver through that that actually isn't overly clinical so they could talk in normal everyday language to people that wouldn't scare them. Um, I, I just I think that would boost things dramatically because going through the internet can be scary and unsure and just being able to talk with somebody. I think people are missing that. You know, we've gotten so automated. Jamie? This is an exciting answer and question for me. One of the things that we're starting in, in discussions, but it has a long way to go, is there's a wonderful model out there regarding cancer and how to navigate the um, once you're diagnosed with cancer, then the treatment, possible trials. And if you go to any, most infusion centers um, that have, a, that has a cancer center, you will see a nurse guiding the patient through and kind of, you know, nurturing them along the process and, and also talking to them about trials and what's available. So I would, I would love to see that model being adopted around Alzheimer's disease. Number one. Number two, um, there's, <laughs> There's a community of us lab rats out there that we converse with each other, and we've had the opportunity actually to recruit other people into studies based on what our positive experience is. So I actually see maybe other research participants as part of this navigation process. That's kind of my dream. Well, and I've got a friend going through breast cancer right now, and you're right. She does have a navigator that is right there to kind of help her through every step, and and I don't, I, you know, I don't know why we don't have that yet. If it's just too new, and some of the, uh, some of the um, physicians I think out there aren't very familiar with even what's available. Yes, and I think physicians are are very busy. I mean, you look at how we are nowadays. You know, the poor physicians they only get a little bit of time with their patients, and so um, I think a great conversation to be a great population or great. Uh, specialty to be included in this would be social workers. I mean, social workers can bill Medicare for their services. And if we could employ social workers that are specialized in dementia, that can help somebody once they have a diagnosis to say, okay, here's your next step. 
here's what's next for you. So they don't feel alone. They feel like, oh gosh, I have a resource available. So, you know, I see social workers kind of getting involved in this process. That makes a, a ton of sense. I also, um, I'm working with a group called um, Provalence that has put together a uh, a dementia um, resource directory. I haven't seen anything like it out there. <clears throat> they still need a little bit more money to do a couple more upgrades, but they've got a, a few million into it. And, you know, there's a place for medications and trials and finances and housing and, um, and then educational pieces that could be broken down to white papers or videos or audio or whatever, but it's, it, it would be a, a place to, cut down a little bit on Google and have it in a, at least have stuff in the same format and then shoot people directly to that place instead of a, the middleman pimping that goes on with, with some things out there in the industry um, that, that raises prices and causes confusion, I think, sometimes to the public. And so I, I think that would be something that could be really helpful too, or even, uh, you know, if you had those navigators out there giving them a title so people could find them because a lot of times they go to the hospital's websites and stuff or the clinics that they're working and they put in the word Alzheimer's and nothing even comes up. One of the things that I'm hearing is that um, how do we pay for this service? I mean, you go into, you know, a resource center or, uh, you know, and it's like, well, how do we pay for that additional services? And because we all have limited funds and, so the idea of having this clinical social worker who can actually build Medicare for her services outside of a clinic would be a way to reimburse and not, not tax or overburden a clinic or a research center. Yeah, I know the one here in, in Minnesota with Health Partners, their neuro center, they've developed a team and they kind of have kind of that navigator person, but it's not, it's not overly common. And they just have built it into their team because they've seen the necessity and they, and they realize what stress does to not only the care partner, but the person with dementia in terms of figuring this out. And it's not healthy stuff. And they've got to be able to reduce that to be able to push things, push things forward. Well, I, I thank you both so much for this conversation today. It's just been very eye-opening and, and a lot of fun. Dr. Sabat, anything that you want to add before we, before we close? No, I think uh, thank you for having me. I think it was very engaging. Hopefully your audience will uh, not always go to Dr. Google to get the answers and will think <laughs> of our book. Uh, we think it's a very important uh, resource. Agree. Jamie, how about you? Just thank you for um, having us here and giving us a voice to share our experiences, um, you know, in the journey that I have gone down and um, sharing the world to, with doctors, sharing Dr. Sabah with the world. I have a lot of respect for him and how he approaches diagnosis, treatment. Um, and so I just, I thank you for lending us a voice. Well, it was my it was my honor, my privilege, and again, every time I do one of these shows, I learn something, and um, and I know my audience will, and I think I think your timing is perfect right now for your story. I really do. I think it's very very powerful. Again, their book is called Fighting for My Life, and you will learn so much about the the journey of genetic testing and the possibilities of how to kind of take control to reduce or prevent uh, dementia heading your way. The numbers are just so high. We don't know who is going to get hit next. 
and you know the international statistic is one person every three seconds develops this disease this is not something that that we can push away this is something that we have to embrace the knowledge that we're given and really harness it and improve all of our lives so again thank you so much for your time and people can go to your website fightingformylifebook.com thank you again hi this is suzanne newman host of the answers for elders podcast and radio show we are the north star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.